0: news weather traffic money politics big interviews and bold opinions it's what's happening right now this is mornings with simmy if you're up right now listening to this i'm just going to take a guess and say that you are somewhat of a morning person i mean absolutely no doubt that is what i am my peak performance hours are from right now until about two in the afternoon and after that it is a steady descent downhill i am no good to anybody After about six o'clock in the evening, I've always kind of been like this, even before I worked these hours, never really liked late evenings or nighttime. I'm just so much better at getting up early and tackling things. So I know my type. Understanding yours though, and tailoring your life around it could make a big difference as we're going to learn about right now with Dr. Cindy May, professor of psychology at the College of Charleston. Thank you so much for joining us
1: good morning thank you so much for having me do we all have an internal kind of biological clock we do all have an internal biological clock and that clock drives a number of physiological processes like body temperature heart rate and blood pressure turns out that those physiological changes also affect our cognitive functioning but what's interesting is that although we all have an internal clock that clock and its pattern over the day differs across individuals. So some people like you are morning types. They wake up, sometimes even without an alarm. They're ready to take on the day immediately when they wake up. Yes, and Dr. Bye. That is me. <laughs> <laughs> but other people uh, are not like that at all. They wake up feeling foggy. They don't want to get out of bed. Maybe they hit the snooze button a number of times and they don't hit their stride until much later in the day. Those folks would be considered evening types And then there are also people who fall somewhere in between who don't bounce right out of bed, but also are not ready to go to the fitness center at 11 p.m. at night and do their workout then. And those people would be called neutral types. Okay. So is it possible to change your type? What's interesting is that there are strong biological influences, but these kind of tend to change over the lifespan. So you are a little bit atypical if you've consider yourself to have always been a morning type person. Most young kids are pretty morning type. And if you're a parent, you know this, (laughs) your kids are waking up early, even on Saturdays and Sundays, there's not much opportunity to sleep in. But as we approach puberty, many people feel a strong shift towards eveningness. And this is where those high schoolers and college students are staying up late at night. They have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And that shift is pretty strong Um, Even for those who don't shift entirely to evening type, they're more evening than they are morning. And then gradually over the lifespan, we tend to shift back towards morningness. So by by the time people reach age 60 or so, about 75% of people age 60 and above are morning types and the rest tend to be neutral types. There are very few, maybe three or 4% of people in late adulthood who are evening type people, true evening type people.
0: Okay, I I can see how this corresponded with my my cycle as well, especially having kids, that really changes your waking hours and you kind of get used
1: to it. It does drive. So there are environmental forces that can have an impact, but those environmental forces can't always override people's natural tendencies. For example, we've looked at young adults who are in the military. These are people who must get up early and must perform early. And while these individuals may report um, that they will perform well early in the morning, if you ask them, okay, let's imagine that you are free to set your schedule, when would you get up and when would you go to bed? If you're a really young adult in the military and you could set your own schedule, you tend to prefer later times. Right. So it's an interplay between the environment and your biological drive.
0: So should we adapt our life to that so that we perform
1: at our best? That's an excellent question. And what I would say is that it depends. First of all, it depends on whether or not you feel that you're really strongly a morning type or an evening type. If you are, if you're either one of these, then the answer would be yes. And you should do so for your most challenging tasks. So it's not really going to matter if you're making your favorite recipe or you're dialing a well-known phone number. The time of day at which you perform that task is not going to matter much. But if you're a strong morning type or a strong evening type, then you're going to learn better, you're gonna attend better, you'll be more analytical, able to tackle challenging tasks like making investment choices or learning new information if you're operating at your peak time of day.
0: So it would really behoove you then or anybody to try to figure out, well, when is my best time of day and kind of work around that?
1: It would, and in fact, most people have some intuitive sense, whether they're a morning type person or an evening type person, but you can um, take sort of the official quiz, if you will. If you go online, if you simply, simply Google "morning evening eveningness questionnaire, there was a questionnaire developed in the 1970s, and it's just 20 simple questions. And the questions ask things like, what time do you prefer to get up in the morning? Do you rely on an alarm clock? If you had to exercise at 7 a.m., how would you do? If you had to perform intellectually at 11 p.m., how would you do? You can take that online quiz and it'll tell you what kind of person uh, that you are. But I think many of us have that intuitive sense. We know if we're not good after 8 p.m. at night, if we're ready for our pajamas at 9 p.m. Or we know <laughs> 9 p.m. Know. Are you kidding me? I'm like, <laughs> so late for well, pajamas. <laughs> right. Well, you're up very, very early. Age. So <laughs> most of us have that intuitive sense of what we are. But we don't always structure our days so that we're doing the most difficult things in our peak window.
0: Right. What I found interesting about this as well is that we know for students, we've heard this for a long time, right? That especially for high school students that we're forcing them to get up early and they're not at their best at that hour. But interesting that if if you're trying to diagnose someone with cognitive disorders, time
1: of day should also play into that absolutely positively so many of the neuropsychological assessments that are done um, are include basic functions like memory attention executive function susceptibility to distraction and we know that these basic intellectual functions are impacted by synchrony and that is synchronizing your peak time uh, your circadian peak with the time at which you're performing some, neuropsychological assessments rely on what I'll call time one and time two assessment. So for example, if you're examining Alzheimer's disease, people are looking at a decline over time. And if I test you initially at your bad time of day, and then six months later at your good time of day, I might miss a decline that's actually there. And if we're looking at attention deficit disorder for students, then you are either going to exaggerate someone's deficits if you test them at their bad time of day, or you might miss um, some of those deficits or underestimate them at their good time. So for students who have to get up early and function in school early, uh, particularly high school students who tend to be evening types, this can really be a difficult situation for them.
0: Right. And this is the research that you work on, right? Where people perform better on these complex mental tasks, depending on what type of person they are. It
1: is. It is. And we find that particularly for those who have the strong uh, chronotypes, that it can be a pretty significant difference. And by significant, I mean, it can be as much as a 10% difference on a memory test. And if you think about 10% for students, that's a grade level right? So that's the difference between a B versus a C or an A versus a B. And people have examined this for IQ tests and found a six point difference on IQ tests for adolescents, testing them at peak versus off peak times. And if you are a student who's really struggling, who may have a learning disability or an intellectual disability, six points on an IQ test could mean the difference between qualifying for intervention and accommodations or not.
0: So it, we really do need to figure this out. And I guess parents should think about that too when they're working with their kids on how to you know, make the best of their time.
1: Absolutely. And one struggle for parents, parents, especially young parents, um, may still tend towards eveningness while their kids yes. are really morning type, yes. And that can make a pretty strong mismatch. What's ironic is that as parents age, they tend to shift towards morningness while their children are shifting towards eveningness, right? So So true. uh, Yeah, and that can create frustrations in homes when kids are sleeping late. Parents may think of their kids as lazy or um, uh, lacking ambition, but kids are really just following their natural circadian rhythm if they are teenagers and they are preferring to stay up later and, and wake up later.
0: All right. Well, this is something for parents to talk about, I think, at home today. Uh, Dr. May, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. That's Dr.
2: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's oll dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Cindy May, a professor of psychology at the College of Charleston. By the way, that quiz that she was talking about, just Google it. Morningness, eveningness questionnaire, and you can find out uh, what kind of rhythm you should be in, essentially. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to check in with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, we're going to talk about something we actually haven't updated the public on for quite a while, Site C.
2: Site C. So uh, the giant dam that we're all paying for on the Peace River under construction since 2015. And back when it was started, the critics said, well, we didn't really need the electricity. Well, it turns out we do. So that part of it's good news. but BC Hydro has been saying for much of the year, Simi, that, well, you know, it was going so well up there. They'd finished building the dam already, and they were probably going to begin filling the reservoir this fall. So this giant reservoir behind the dam. There have been rumors that that wasn't going to happen Uh, They came up in the legislature last week. Green MLA, Adam Olson, asked the question. I sent a note to Hydro asking them. Hydro started to kind of hedge on whether or not it was going to happen, and Simi, yesterday they announced it's not on. There are still some problems getting the dam ready for them to begin filling the reservoir behind it. And this is going to sound like Game of Thrones, but winter is coming.
0: (laughs) Okay, so what is the problem? Is that it? Winter well, is coming? It's
2: okay. So they finished the earth fill dam, but there's a lot of other stuff that has to happen around it. And now they're saying, well, there's still work to be done on the spillways, uh, the intake gates, um, and other parts of the dam. And that part of the world it gets cold and snow early. Uh, The optimum time for filling the reservoir, Simi, is September, October. We've been told this for years. A spring runoff is a little not great time to be filling a dam in that part of the world. Winter isn't either. So they've pretty much missed the window and it's not going to happen. But Simi, this is BC Hydro, right? So we have a term called Hydrospeak, which is what hydro tells you and then you need to translate it. So Hydro is saying that this just means they're sticking to the original schedule for filling the reservoir. It's not like they're a year behind schedule. They're going to do it in the fall of 2024. No, no, no. Uh, They talked about maybe doing it this fall, but that would be early. And so they're back on schedule. And of course, uh, I always love this part of a BC Hydro press release, Simi. Um, the project is on time and on schedule and on budget. What? <laughs> <laughs> Hydro speak, as I said. So here's the deal: uh, the project is going to cost sixteen billion dollars, not eight billion. So, in the real world, we call that a one hundred percent budget overrun. And the project was supposed to start producing electricity. In 2024, that isn't happening until 2025. So in the real world, we think of that as a year behind schedule, but down at BC Hydro headquarters, they have their own vocabulary and their own language, on time, on budget, and hey, we always meant to put off filling the reservoir until the fall of 2024, so no change there either.
0: Really? No change at all? (laughs) Really?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, uh, Keith Baller and I were talking about this yesterday, because you sort of collect these press releases, right? The government, the electricity will be available in the fall of 2025. And it will be clean because um, hydroelectric dams don't produce a lot of emissions, especially when they've cleaned out the reservoir ahead of time, as they did here. Uh, But we were talking about how many times has the government committed the electricity from Site C? So they committed it to a hydrogen plant in the Northeast a while ago. They've committed it to electric vehicles. They've committed it to the second phase of the LNG terminal uh, that's coming online in Kitimat. And I see yesterday in this big announcement of the lithium battery factory in Maple Ridge that um that plant will be switching from natural gas to electricity, courtesy of the miracle of Site C. So you're going to need an auditor to go over all this and figure out how, much t- how many times they've already used that electricity. But here's another example.
0: Okay. So uh, is this something <laughs> that they'll be talking more about? Like, obviously, this is raising more questions at this point, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's, you know, we're in pre-election mode. So Pretty much everything they say is, you know, don't hold us to these numbers, <laughs> don't hold <laughs> us, don't hold us to this schedule, and wait for the real stuff after the election, which they plan to win, of course. But, um, but
0: that's a year away. Uh, what do you mean? Like yeah. that, they can't. That, so they're telling. Right. Yeah,
2: Vaughn's yeah. like, J- I know, J- I know, city.
0: I get it. He's like. I'm preaching to the choir on this one. Yeah. Is that what the next year is going to be like then, yeah. Vaughn? Is a lot of it, oh, wait until, we'll know next year, we'll know next year?
2: Yeah, I think so. And, you know, uh, the the Premier and the Prime Minister, who was here yesterday making this big announcement as well, the two of them are both in high-definition uh, political mode. So on this kind of thing, they're on the same page, right? I mean, that. We can talk about a little more about that Mali announcement yesterday, but there's a huge number of unanswered questions about that one, but that didn't keep them from staging a major media event in Maple Ridge yesterday.
0: Von Palmer now from the Vancouver Sun. So, Von, I saw this big, big announcement, enough so that the Prime Minister stopped here on his way to APEC to talk about this, uh, but it's an expensive announcement.
2: Yeah, the one number that did not figure in the uh, press conference with Premier and the Prime Minister yesterday, nor is it really in the press releases, is $2 million per job. I think as a taxpayer, uh, as a person not wedded to either uh, of our parties uh, or any of our parties, uh, the thing you want to do when they announce one of these big deals like they did yesterday in Maple Ridge, um, they putting up, it's a billion-dollar deal to build a an lithium ion battery factory so modern innovative technology and the company that's doing it has a bit of roots in maple ridge so it's not just happened to be there so a billion dollars being put up and you're going to get 350 new jobs and secure 100 existing jobs so two million dollars a job um there's a couple of things to say about that, Simi. I mean, first of all, they did not give us a timetable for when this factory opens, although I gather it's 2026 is the target. And the second thing is they, when they do this, they always say we've secured with public money uh, private investment as well. So this isn't just public money that's going in there, but, you know, what you don't get is a fair comparison, Simi, to how does this compare to all the other giveaway deals they've done, like the big Volkswagen deal back east, as an example. Oh, and that one was huge. That one was huge at $14 billion. So, you know, I, it, the companies out there, Simi, have figured this out, right? This is the era we're in. When they're planning to build some kind of new, trendy, green technology, they bargain, they go to governments and they say, okay, what do you got on the table for us, right? It's been going on in the United States for a long time. It's, it's uh, going on in Europe too. So it's not like, I think we're actually late arrivals to this, but the problem you have, uh, you know, trying to judge this as a member of the public is how does this one compare to some of the other deals? You know, they these are one-off deals and they're dependent on how much The governments want the deal and how much the uh, corporations, international in this case Taiwanese, are prepared to, to bargain for, the companies know how badly the politicians want this stuff. They use their leverage very, very effectively. What we don't have is a kind of independent assessment from someone who has the public interest as opposed to the political interest. And that's where I find it frustrating to cover these things. Uh, Uh, Yeah. You know, $2 million a job? Okay, well, how does that compare to Volkswagen?
0: I was thinking Uh, back about, what, five years ago, remember when Amazon did this? Remember Amazon for their HQ2, I think this was 2017, they started the process. They essentially asked every city in North America to compete for this, and 200 cities did, and they wanted tax breaks. They were absolutely blatant in saying, Mm. who's going to give us the best deal, and we will build our second headquarters there?
2: Yep. A few years ago, I looked at a couple of the big ones south of the border. So BMW put a a, a factory in Washington state in Moses Lake to build the panels for their electric vehicle. And by the way, they used cheap Columbia River power that we helped provide. So they did that one. The ultimate one at the time was Tesla building a battery factory. They pitted a half dozen Western states against each other. The the sweepstakes were won by the state of Nevada. They put the factory in Reno, $1.25 billion in incentives, free land, tax holidays. The state built them a highway. And my favorite detail, the state of Nevada guaranteed that if Tesla signed on, they could start construction in 90 days. I mean, it's been pointed out to me that you couldn't get a government in Canada to return your phone call in 90 days. Never mind, let you start construction. So, <laughs> so you true. know, I don't dismiss. I don't diminish it. It it goes on everywhere in the world. Canada has to play this game, I think. But what we need is we need some kind of independent vetting of the deals and some common formula that's applied. So we make sure that the companies aren't taking us to the cleaners, and we make sure the politicians aren't giving away more than they need to do to land the jobs and the investment.
0: It's so hard to dig out that information, though, isn't it, Vaughn? Because the the governments don't want you to know what they're giving away for this. The companies don't want you to know what they're getting for this. And it could be years before you can actually
2: see the results. Yeah, and these are huge, powerful, well-funded companies with boards of directors and teams of lawyers and accountants and they're up against you know our public service and our public service is capable you know they're they're competent and they're certainly honest in this country which I think is a good thing but You do go, uh, let's occasionally let's have maybe the federal auditor general, maybe the auditor generals across the country could weigh in and say, okay, we're going to look at these deals and we're going to look at all the paperwork and we're going to do comparisons and say, okay, well, this is within the ballpark. This is what you get around the world for this. And some of them, they go, no, come on. This is, this is too much. This is too much of a giveaway. The politicians, you're right, Simi, they're never going to tell us that. Yeah. What they're going to do is score the announcement, score the cachet of green and clean and being able to associate themselves with the future. And we're not going to know whether, you know, uh, the, this amount of money could have gotten some other job package for British Columbia or Maple Ridge. Uh, at a, and more jobs and a better deal.
0: It's almost something that I feel like a, a university researcher needs to tackle.
2: Yeah, it would take yeah, that no, much yeah, depth, right? Point. Yeah, university think tanks could help out on this, I think. And again, uh, to do those kinds of comparisons, and I mean, I'm just you know the, relying on some of the coverage. Uh, Fortune magazine in the U.S. did a very good analysis of the Tesla deal ten years ago, and. They said, you know, this is the richest deal that anybody's ever landed. My guess is it's been surpassed since then more than once. But yeah, the companies know what they're doing here. Do our politicians care enough about the public interest to make sure they're not giving away more than they need to give away in order to get the deal?
0: Very true. All right. Well, wise words. Thank you for that, Vaughn. (laughs) Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. And that was a huge announcement yesterday. There's lots about it in the news today. 450 jobs in total, 350 of those new, but a lot of money, right? A billion dollars for a lithium-ion battery project out in Maple Ridge.
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Do we not learn anything ever but I was reading the news about how Health Canada has approved these flavored nicotine pouches sold without restrictions in convenience stores. And obviously, there are concerns that this could appeal to minors because of the flavors and some of the marketing tactics that are being used by the big American you know, tobacco and British companies that are selling this product. It's called Zonic. Now, Health Canada has justified it, saying it's oh, it's a natural health product meets safety standards. They think it's similar to other nicotine replacement therapies like gums or patches, but come on, this company is advertising on platforms like Instagram. I'm going to say this right now. Go to Netflix, and if you haven't watched this yet, you must watch it. It's a documentary called Big Vape, The Rise and Fall of Juul, and you will see how those marketing tactics are so critical in developing who ends up using these products, and boy, the vaping thing and and how kids got into it because of the way Juul was being marketed, and that we saw that happening right in front of us and felt kind of powerless to stop it. It's crazy. So is that happening here Again, like, why would Health Canada approve this? Obviously, there's lots of concerns being raised here. Uh, Rob Cunningham is with us, Senior Policy Analyst for the Canadian Cancer Society. Rob, thank you for joining us.
4: Simi, good to be with you.
0: What are the concerns about this product?
4: Well, we have a series of concerns, but uh, this is Health Canada has approved these flavored nicotine pouches from Imperial Tobacco in a way that they can be legally sold to children of any age, so we have in British Columbia minimum age of 19 for tobacco and e-cigarettes, uh, but nothing for these nicotine pouches. Nicotine is highly addictive. We've seen these products being marketed in the United States and in Europe. Uh, they've become very popular uh, with youth, and as you mentioned, the marketing strategies are appealing to youth and the flavors. One of the flavors is Tropic Breeze. I mean, that's not even a real flavor. What is that? I mean, it's a it's a lifestyle aspiration. And they're using, uh, you know, these promotional videos, uh, you know, and uh, on the social media, uh, Instagram, there's promotions at convenience stores. You go into a convenience store, tobacco and cigarettes, they're covered up. But these can be openly displayed. And, you know, I just heard, you know, uh, somebody from uh, New Brunswick was telling me how some young person came in and they bought 50 of these containers, paid 700 bucks, like a teenager. And, you know, the feeling was they're going to be reselling to people at schools. I mean, there's just no control here. <laughs> how can we be doing this? How, that,
0: I mean, that's my question. How, how, what is Health Canada's excuse for this?
4: Well, they've got to figure this out. And because the public is not going to accept this. And we've given two options to Health Minister Mark Holland and Associate Health Minister Yersak. One, make it a prescription-only product. And they could do that very quickly, administratively, no regulatory amendment. And that would still allow access You know, if it's to be used for smoking cessation, but it would protect youth and everybody else who's not supposed to be using it. The second option would be for Minister Holland to use his authority under Section 19 of the Natural Health Product Regulations to suspend the sale. And then uh, to give time to have a regulatory framework. We have a, you know, a, a big regulatory gap, a vacuum, you know, that's allowing all of this promotion that we don't allow for vaping products or tobacco products. And the kids are being exposed to, um, you, you, you know, in convenience stores, and all kinds of places. You could have a billboard across from high school. You could have advertising on television. Um, and also, uh, you know, to have some ban on sales to minors. So there's a there's a huge problem here.
0: Yeah, I, I don't understand how this is a natural health product. Rob, how is this a natural well, health product?
4: Yeah, I mean... Uh, it's kind of weird, the wording of the regulation, Uh, you know, that is kind of the same process by which the nicotine gum and the nicotine patch uh, have been approved, Uh, supposedly because nicotine is a, you know, natural occurring product. But the problem is, of course, is that nicotine is so highly addictive and it's different than the other products that are under the natural health product regulations. And the big difference with the nicotine patch and nicotine gum is that youth haven't used these. Uh, over decades, in haven't gotten addicted to them.
0: Well, they're not um, but, they're not marketed that way, are they? Like a nicotine yeah. patch or nicotine gum is. This doesn't look fun. They they look medicinal.
4: That's right. And you have, you know, what Imperial Tobacco is doing. They, you know, they're the masters at marketing to underage kids. They you know done it for decades, and, this, and the Supreme Court of Canada has concluded that uh, in you know in their judgment. But you know, Imperial Tobacco has these lifestyle ads with happy young people and social settings and doing sports and. Um, you know, a couple, you know, um, and what, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, haven't we learned anything?
0: Yeah, I guess that is the question here, too. So when it comes to marketing, that that's the big concern, right? That uh, this is not regulated at all if it's a natural health product about how it can be marketed?
4: There's, there's no restriction on the location of ads and there's next to nothing in terms of the content of ads. So it can't be false and misleading, but that doesn't get you very far. I mean, you know, false misleading ads have been illegal for more than 100 years and they've never stopped tobacco companies. And, you know, they have to have, you know, some reference to, you know, smoking cessation. So they've got these big, colorful pictures of people and then maybe a tiny line about nicotine replacement therapy or something like that. But, you know, the the way they're marketing, you know, it's clearly appealing to youth. These flavors are appealing to youth. The containers are small. They could well hold candy. Of course, kids are going to be interested. And when a convenience store, you know, if they sell it to somebody underage, there's no age. (laughs) If they sell it to a twelve-year-old, you know, there's no possibility of an offense, uh, of charges, of fines. Uh, This is it. Really boggles the mind the situation we're in.
0: It kind of does. So, what are the next steps here? Is there any process by which complaints can be lodged
4: on it? Well, I think really it's a it's a decision for the Minister of Health, um, you know, and the Associate Minister of Health to take advantage of the remedies that are available. Um, you know, I mean, you know, a complaint that the current law is not being complied with um, is not going to be enough because the current law is so weak. Um, but yes, I mean, I, the Canadian public, uh, you know, I, I think is going to insist that there'd be action taken. I, I might just speak, myself, you know, uh, to neighbors or many people, they say,
0: what? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like When you describe the product as flavored nicotine pouches, okay, that's one thing. But when you say, listen, it's sold in convenience stores and really anybody could buy it. As soon as you say that with nicotine, people have a
4: problem with it. They do and they should. And, and so it's really, you know, we, we need a political action, you know, by the, uh, by the Minister of Health.
0: All right, we'll see what happens. Rob, thank you so much for your time.
4: Thanks. That is really? Rob
0: Cunningham, senior policy analyst for the Canadian Cancer Society. They are puzzled by this. Uh, you know, when it's marketed as a natural health product, uh, it it doesn't put any limits on how that product can be marketed. Yeah, it can seem cool to young people. And there it is right there in the convenience store. So there are a lot of questions about why Health Canada would do this. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I get the feeling I'm going to sound a bit like a Luddite with this next segment that we're going to be talking about. I apologize for that. Sometimes it just comes over me. But our Scott Scottshats is very um, techno-enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as you can tell, and he's ready to jump on any kind of technological bandwagon where I am more of a no, let me see if I really need this first.
3: Yeah, I mean, I do approach uh, things like with a degree of caution. I'm not just like, oh, if it's new and it's techie, I, I totally want it. Like I I don't have an Apple Watch. You know, I, that's one of the things that I, I I would get one. I just didn't, you know, I'm behind the gotten, curve on that. Scott,
0: you just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, but
3: I, I'm just <laughs> and I'm also aware that every time you get one of these things, you're also giving something back yes. to them in terms I'm, of your I'm data. I'm still and a all year later yes.
0: struggling with how much my car wants to know about me. A perfect example, yes. That,
3: you know, we want all the car connections and remote I unlock don't. and remote start and everything. <laughs> well, most people do.
0: I turn Bluetooth off in my car because sure. I, don't, I don't want to talk my car to talk to me. Okay,
3: most people want yes. their cars to be connected, but you're also giving something up. They right. get all this data from you and, you know, all this sort of information and they Maybe your car needs to be serviced and you can't drive it until it gets serviced because it'll void the warrant. There's all sorts of implications in giving back this data. But we're starting to see this move from like cars and cell phones into clothing, into actual clothing. This is called wearable technology and uh, it's already here and it's like, I mean, it's here in small doses, but it's going to start showing up in big doses. So I spoke with Kate Hartman. She is from the Ontario University of Art and Design and she works in their social. Social Body Lab, and I started just by asking her to explain to me, like, what is wearable tech?
5: Wearable tech is basically any kind of technology that lives in the body space or in your clothing or accessories. Um, You know, any kind of computation that can be worn on the body.
3: What purpose would this serve? I know like the first place my brain goes is like uh, Fitbit, like exercise things. We've sort of seen that with like Apple Watch and that type of thing. But uh, what are the other sort of implications for this type of stuff that uh, come to mind immediately when you think of wearable tech?
5: Uh, I see a lot of work being done by fashion designers, um, also pieces that are more ready to wear, Uh, I work with it more in kind of like an art and design and research context, um, so less product focused and more on kind of exploring the possibilities of what it means to live with this technology um, in your daily embodied experience.
3: Yeah, and that's, I think, where uh, there's a lot of um, questions. Is this just another way for, for companies to collect more and more and more data about us if we're starting to wear things that just are constantly collecting data and, like, I don't know, maybe locations, that type of thing? Or am I, is that just, like, totally unfounded?
5: Uh, no, I, I think those are really important uh, questions to consider. Uh, you know, We're reaching a moment where we're paying attention to your terms of service It's quite important, Uh, but you know it can be both things, right? We we work with a lot of online services that are beneficial to us, but then also our data is being used for purposes that we might not think about or we might not like. And so it's going to be interesting to see you know where this sort of thing goes in the future. Um, And so yeah, you pointed to location services, also you know health metrics um, become of interest. To healthcare providers, but also to insurance companies in certain regions. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, benefits, but also uh, kind of ethical quandaries surrounding this stuff.
3: Maybe give us, give me an example of um, some of the cool things that you have seen in terms of wearable tech, and and uh, what where those things might be going in the future.
5: Sure, I mean there's been a lot of work over the last few decades in terms of incorporating uh, light into garments and so you know different kinds of like leds or fiber optics or electroluminescent material and so that's a very kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of something that's visually striking um, but then there's you know also more sophisticated pieces that uh, incorporate sensors into the weave of a garment or Um, work with, uh, kinetics or motion in a garment. So that is done through, uh, threads or yarns or fibers that have different electrical, uh, properties so that they can sense, you know, the physical, uh, activities uh, that are happening around them, which is pretty cool.
3: Now, is there any sort of um like concern around this? You know, we talked about the data thing, but like is there a concern that this is uh, like we're becoming too connected, or, I don't know, what are like are there dangers or concerns associated with this?
5: Of course, but I, I think they're largely akin to those that we're looking at across technologies at the moment. We have a lot of these automation systems in our homes now. And so I think it's a broader connection for us broader question for us as humans about how how much information about our, our every moment do we want to be shared. Um, but in terms of wearable technology, you know not every wearable device has to be networked. Um, it can it can be a standalone thing. And so for instance, you know in my advanced wearables class we just did an assignment focusing on solar power and you know harvesting, uh, energy, you know, through the way solar panels are integrated into a garment, and so that has nothing to do with network technology. It's more a standalone electronics project.
3: Oh, see that sounds cool. See that I like. So, how long until we start to see this type of stuff? Uh, in the mainstream, you know, that people are just kind of wearing jackets with tech or or shoes or clothes or, you know, things like this just kind of available on on store shelves and everybody's kind of wearing it like we all wear Apple watches.
5: Yeah, I mean, like it's already kind of happening. So, you know, if you talked about wearable technology 10 or 15 years ago, it was a much different experience. and, And now there's, you know, whole sections in Tech stores for these wearable devices, they tend to be more of these kind of wrist-oriented things, as well as you know, virtual reality headsets and augmented reality glasses and that sort of thing. But in terms of fashion, you know, there are uh, there's a lot that we're seeing on the runway, and then there's also a lot that is coming through, you know, kind of mass-produced ready-to-wear items. So you can. Uh, Google, you know, or like go to Amazon and look for like fiber optic tank top or something like that. And you actually probably will find a result. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I don't think they're, yeah, I don't think they're being worn, you know, kind of in the day to day. But in the context of, you know, parties and events and stuff like that, they're, they're a bit more widespread
3: that's kate hartman she's director of the social body lab at ontario college of art and design i like it simmy solar power jacket you put your phone in the pocket and it wirelessly recharges no I, what why <laughs> it's not online it's not it's no. just like having a wireless charger in do you use wireless charging to charge your phone uh no it's the greatest thing it's uh, oh simmy see
0: this I, is where I you're don't, missing if out my, if my phone dies then my phone dies. so be it but That's then just the you, way it goes. Now you're disconnected. The wow, world is what? over. What shocking, <laughs> shocking. Me? Ah, oh, Scott, you're so young, so youthful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. That is our Scott Chance if you want to weigh in send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, convicted sex offender Randall Hopley is back in police custody, arrested outside an actual VPD station. An off-duty police officer apparently recognized him and arrested him there, and they believe that Hopley was actually trying to turn himself in, he said he was cold. The question now, though, is how to prevent similar incidents in the future. Now, Dr. Rosemary Riccadelli is a professor of sociology and criminology at Memorial University and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Are there lessons to be learned here from the Hopley case? And if so, what are they? Well,
6: I don't necessarily know um, lessons to be learned. I don't think this is a very um, unique case. You have an individual who breached his parole... Um, and and he's he's on a long-term statutory offender, um, he's on an LTSO, and what that means is he is under the surveillance of Correctional Service Canada for at least a 10-year period. What's interesting about this particular designation, when he breaches and goes back to prison, that designation pauses, it doesn't continue, Um, It pauses. So he has to serve the entire term. So in many ways, CSC and Correctional Service Canada and the parole board is actually taking a lot of precautions to ensure that he is constantly under supervision.
0: Uh, Okay, so then what changes for him now, as you say, rather than being out, he was out before at
6: the halfway house, he will have to go back to prison. It is very likely he will go back to um, prison on a parole breach, a breach of his his orders. And what that will mean is his long-term offender status, that will continue post his release, but that will pause and he will have to serve whatever time has been incurred based on his breach, his breach based on his warrant expiration.
0: And how long does the designation of long-term statutory offender go on for? Is it just until something changes or until
6: somebody applies to have it changed? Um, it really depends on what is imposed by the courts, right, and by the parole board. So in that context, um, most of them tend to be around a decade. Okay,
0: a decade then. Did, are there holes in the system, though, Dr. Riccadelli? Like from what you saw with this particular case, are there areas that we kind of need to perhaps
6: strengthen? There's many holes in the system, and it's not because anyone's not well-intentioned in trying. You know, there's um, There's a vast possibility. We have parole officers who are really overworked, There's a good chance that they're doing their best, but are unable to provide the degree of supervision that's necessary for a particular person. And you have to remember that each individual is unique. It has unique needs. So their opportunity for successful reentry will vary based on how well our systems can meet their needs.
0: Okay, so that's an area that I feel like we don't talk enough about, right? People want conditions, they want more supervision, but can the system handle that kind of supervision?
6: And that's where it gets complicated. And also, what kind of supervision are we imposing? Are we looking at their needs and imposing restrictions and imposing circumstances or conditions that help them do better in the society in which they exist? Or are we imposing conditions and ways of living that are pushing them to adhere to something that maybe they aren't able to? So it gets really complicated. And do they have the degrees of, you know, interventions and supports and mental health supports? And, you know, you have a sex offender. Um, based on his criminality, is he getting the supports he needs, the, the behavioral therapies necessary to understand the difference between consenting and non-consenting? But so this is, is he getting the treatment he needs in order to ensure that he does not re-offend?
0: What do we do, though, when somebody doesn't want the treatment? Because that was the case here, where in his history, it turns out he he didn't engage in any of the treatment.
6: Well, Then we have to actually look at the treatment and what's making people not want it. And what can we do to make it meet the needs of the person who's actually requiring it? You know, I don't think people just don't want treatment. I think sometimes there's, um, there's verification or, or there's a, a diversity or a disjuncture between what a person needs and what feels to be working. So is the treatment actually meeting his needs? And if it is meeting his needs, why don't we look at what's, uh, what are the barriers to participation?
0: So we're we talking about tailoring the treatment better to the person that we're trying to help?
6: Yeah, like when we look at... Think of mental health in general in our in our population. Think of these, the vulnerable population. We're not going to impose a treatment that's not going to work for them. We're going to try to tailor that treatment to best meet their needs. Hmm. Can the so system, why is it different when we change populations? Can the system handle something like that? Well, if it can't, I think we have to do more in order to make it handle it. We have to look at, you know, persons who are incarcerated are amongst the most vulnerable in our populations. You know, if you think about... You know, we celebrate people who work in, these, in homeless shelters. We celebrate people who work with vulnerable populations. And then you go into the prisons, and these officers and the staff are working with our most vulnerable population. We don't celebrate them in the same way. So if we really want to make an impact, maybe we have to change how we perceive the realities of those incarcerated. So
0: what kind of changes do you think are, I don't want to use the word easiest, but most reachable, I guess, for us to make in light of the situation?
6: I think if we can do more to give office parole officers, for example, but everyone, an ability to meet their, the requirements of their job with proper staffing, and proper caseloads, and things that are manageable and feasible, so they can actually provide what they need to provide for each client in which they oversee, I think we can do a lot. And I know it's a human resource issue, but I, I'm I've done a lot of work in parole, and I've never met parole officers who don't care about the people under their supervision. So often what I see is their wellness moves in tandem with the needs of the people they supervise. And when they feel they can't do their job the way they want, because of staffing shortages and high caseloads, they become quite stressed. So we can probably help everyone in the system by rethinking a little bit about, you know, caseloads and human resource needs. Hmm. That's a really and good point. And that brings point. us to a bigger problem because we have a, a poor, we, we have a challenge right now in all public safety fields of recruiting and retaining the necessary stopping. Hmm. So this would help on that regard
0: as well. Dr. Riccadelli, thank you so much for your time on that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. That's Dr. Rosemary Riccadelli, who's a professor of sociology and criminology at Memorial University, talking about the strains in the system that I think this Randall Hopley situation has really kind of exposed. And she makes an excellent point there. Is that if that monitoring system were more robust, if those people didn't feel like they were overworked, if they had more support and there were more people to do that, then maybe we wouldn't have had a situation where he was so easily able to just cut off his bracelet and walk away from a halfway house and wander around for 10 days before turning himself in because he was cold. Uh, So is that the part of the system that needs to be supported? Sure, we can put the conditions down and say, yes, this person must be monitored. Not much good, right? Unless you have the system in place to make sure the monitoring actually occurs. This is Mornings with Simi. It is a shrinkflation scandal in the United States. People are very upset about a particular product that they have noticed is getting smaller. We'll have more on that in just a moment, but you've noticed this too. And the thing is, companies are very stealthy can't really maybe tell by the packaging, but you're noticing, for instance, Michelle wrote me and Michelle says, so every Christmas Eve, my husband makes Christmas morning wife saver for brekkie on Christmas day. Also love that. That's very funny. Uh, She said, same recipe, same ingredients every year. Last year he went to make it and the bread was short as in, there wasn't enough bread to complete the recipe as in previous years. He had to go to the store to get another loaf mid cooking. She said, I actually wrote to the bread company to tell them about this and ask them what was going on? Were their loaves smaller now and why? And she said, they wrote her back. They gave her some excuse, but they gave her some coupons. So she was pretty happy about that. So she's saying it is okay to actually contact the company and ask them about this. But the thing is she noticed and that to say everybody else out there is also noticing this. In united states people very upset because of their oreos and this is something that jesse newman has written about jesse is the food and agriculture reporter for the wall street journal and joins us now good morning jesse hi there so people are really noticing this have they been writing to you and telling you that (laughs) they have been
7: um lots of consumers have, have angst about their oreos right now
0: okay so what happened who noticed this
7: first well, I, you know, it's hard to say who noticed first. Um, I noticed a, uh, with the help of a colleague, um, a consumer who had tweeted uh, back in June. Uh, They had tweeted, uh, you know, suspicions that the cream in their double stuff Oreos was less than it had been previously. And, you know, this consumer said that uh, the cream reminded him more of a regular Oreo rather than a double stuff. And when I sort of went and looked at this, it looked as though, you know, this is something that consumers have been talking about for a while. Um, If you, you know, look on social media, there are comments going back as, you know, as much as a, a year, year plus ago. So this is, you know, something that people have been noticing for for many months.
0: Okay. And they seem very upset about this, don't they?
7: (laughs) They are. I mean, you're messing with people's childhood memories. So they,
0: they love their Double Stuff Oreos. And so what did the company have to say about that?
7: You know, they said a number of things. Um, Mondelēz said that they really haven't done much to change their cookie to cream ratio in recent years. You know, they say that they're always working to improve the product and that they're always sort of tweaking and optimizing, but that they haven't changed that cookie to cream ratio. Um, You know, they say that they monitor their brands really closely and, you know, they say that the complaints about the cream haven't risen to sort of fever pitch um, for them, Uh, but you know, certainly, certainly, it's something that that people are talking about, <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so what happened when you wrote about this?
7: <laughs> uh well i think people started talking about it even more um you know ever people have been noticing a, a variety of of issues you know one is that they feel as though the double stuff has less cream i mean i talked to people who said you know I, I used to not like double stuff oreos because it was too much cream and now it's perfect um i also talked to people who thought that their regular oreos had a lot less cream and them. frankly um you know some some thought that they had very little cream in there um and that you know made it difficult to sort of pull them apart because there just wasn't very much of a middle.
0: Listen, when I see the pictures of this, I am also convinced I am with the people who think that that cream filling is getting smaller because it used to be that the cream filling went like all the way to the edge. Now, not so much in some of these Oreos, Jesse.
7: That's a big piece of it too. A lot of people said, you know, just the circumference of the Oreo of the cream has shrunk. Um, And so it no longer reaches the edge. I, it does, you know, seem as though it's possible that there are quality issues, quality control issues at the manufacturing plants as well. Sometimes the um, the cream, uh, you know, it's maybe sort of quarter size and it's offset to one side. Um, so, you know, if you go online, you can find all all kinds of videos <laughs> of people picking picking this apart and airing their grievances.
0: I'll bet this wasn't on your bingo card for 2023,
7: was it? <laughs> it was not. But I do think that it touches on something, uh, you know, that is pretty universal right now, which is, that you know, people, um, given you know the inflation that we have seen in all aspects of our lives, I think consumers are really on high alert for places um, where they are being shortchanged and just kind of on high alert for for ripoffs, you know, because they've seen packaging sizes shrink and and other changes. Um, and so I think it you know this is sort of a fun example, but it it's something that's very real in consumers' lives.
0: Oh, absolutely, people can get worked up about this. So as a food and agriculture reporter, Jesse, have you seen more of this in terms of do companies are are they Are they willing to discuss shrinkflation with you?
5: You know they are
7: to a degree, so during you know, during the pandemic uh, you know and as we start to see inflation really take off, you did start to see companies being candid about the ways that they are trying have been trying to combat inflation, um, you know, and those range from just raising their wholesale prices to um, scaling back discounts to, you know, doing what is known as price pack architecture, which is, you know, shrinking the size of a product um, and then charging, you know, as much or more for it. So basically, you know, putting out products that, that carry a higher profit margin. So they have been willing to discuss what they're doing to an extent. There are, you know, Mondelez in this case say that they, you know, that they haven't messed with the <laughs> with the cream in the Oreo because they don't want to touch the quality of such an iconic product, and that that isn't a way that they. They have, you know, fought their own um, increasing costs, but consumers remain suspicious.
0: Right. Because at some point you, you kind of hit a tipping point, right, where you might have been able to shrink it a little bit and then a little bit, but then all of a sudden people notice. Has this been the year, do you think, where people really started to notice?
7: I do. I do think people are, are, you know, everything is sort of coming to a head. And another, you know, something else that is interesting to talk to people about is, you know, Oreos are so specific and they're so precise. Like everybody knows what an Oreo is supposed to look like. They are a certain, uh, you know, they're a certain size and they're so round and there's the impression on the top. And, you know, I talked to some analysts who said with products that are less precise, you know, take Chips Ahoy. A consumer might be more hard pressed to notice if there were, you know, two fewer chocolate chips in that cookie um, because, you know, they're not used to a specific number. But for something as just as specific as an Oreo, you, you know, you start to tweak things in very small ways and people will notice.
0: Jesse, let me tell you, not only are there fewer chocolate chips in that cookie, (laughs) but those cookies are also smaller. Like those, I find that even the cookies, I look at them, I'm like, this is not a cookie. This is like one bite. What is this?
6: Well, there you
7: go. There you go. Yeah, people have been noticing, you know, fewer chips in their chip bags and and really, you know, really um, asking companies to be accountable for these changes, uh, which, you know some are some are willing to do and some are not.
0: Yes, they are. Listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate that. Yeah, thanks so much. Good luck. That is Jesse Newman, food and agriculture reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Jesse has written about the shrinkflation scandal down in the U.S. having to do with double stuff Oreos. It took like a one person to kind of go online as it always does to say, Hey, has anybody else noticed this? And then, you know, the floodgates open. Everybody said, yes, I've noticed this was double stuff Oreos. It doesn't seem like double stuff anymore. It seems like the regular amount of stuff. And so I was asking you, what was the product that did it for you that you noticed at the grocery store that things have changed? This is getting smaller. Wendy wrote me to say margarine I said one product I have noticed the larger containers she said used to be 907 grams and now they are 850, even though they still look about the same. And Wendy, I'm willing to bet they still cost about the same, even though the amount you're getting is smaller. Linda said, Two things that she noticed. One, she noticed it at a fast food restaurant. She went to Wendy's and she said, that junior bacon cheeseburger is not as big as it used to be. And then Linda also said, cat litter, big deal at her house. Her cat is obsessed, very particular. They settled on a particular brand. And now she's noticing that that brand has not only gotten more expensive, but the bag also getting smaller. Rick said two things, two things drive him nuts. One pound of bacon, not and hot dogs. They come in a package of eight now, but the buns only come in packages of six or 12. That's true. Hot dog mismatch. It is definitely a real problem. And then Stu actually sent me a picture. She said, all you have to do, all, all Stu said is you have to look at the can of soup. And she said, and he said it used to be 540 milliliters and now it's 515 milliliters. They've made the can taller and skinnier. Same price though. Good points, Stu. Thank you very much for that. If you've got a shrinkflation example for me, send it to me, simi, at cknw.com.
2: Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine Podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective.